A comment that I have heard often by people who load the lectures on faith is that even if Joseph Smith did not write these lectures, he knew they were being given and he reviewed them. So it's just like he wrote them. Well, there's probably two things we could say about that. One is there's actually no historical evidence that Joseph ever looked at them or touched them. The second thing is we can look at, well, did Joseph use the lectures? Did he claim them? Did he quote them? Did he teach from them? Did he ever repeat these teachings? And the answer to that is no, not once. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, and welcome to the LDS Perspectives Podcast. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I am here today with Noel Reynolds to talk about an article that was published back in 2005 from a lecture he gave at the 2003 Mormon Historical Association meetings entitled The Case for Sidney Rigdon as Author of the Lectures on Faith. Noel, tell us a little bit about your background, because you taught political science at BYU, but you're known for your research in Book of Mormon and historical studies. Well, you're exactly right. BYU hired me in 1970 to teach philosophy, particularly political and legal philosophy classes, which were my specialty. And I did continue to teach that throughout my career there. But I also was involved in uh, teaching Book of Mormon classes one a semester usually. And this led to involvement with a lot of other topics, church history and so forth. And over time, I've actually published a couple of articles in church history, uh, in addition to quite a few things in Book of Mormon studies. And those kinds of things, even though they were more my hobby than my main line of scholarly research, obviously attracted a lot more attention from an LDS community, things on the rule of law, and uh, legal philosophy. Oh, I bet. So, Noel, can you start us out by reviewing a little background on the Lectures of Faith? The Lectures on Faith come out of the Kirtland School, it was called, the winter of uh, 1834-1835. There is almost no documentation on this school, and the we have a few reports about it from in the journals of some of the participants. And the most interesting reports were written 50 years after the fact. It's really uncertain what exactly it was, even who taught it. It was presided over on all accounts by Sidney Rigdon. It included simple things like handwriting and grammar. And they were, this was an attempt to help the brethren be a little more sophisticated most of them did not have a strong educational background. But one dimension of it was to discuss gospel topics. And faith was one that was featured by those accounts. That school has since gained the label of uh, the School of the Elders or School of the Prophets. But at the time, it was just called the Kirtland School. How does what they were doing in that Kirtland School end up as something that we know as the lectures on faith? Well, that's very controversial. <laughs> and different people have different theories about 
what that connection might be. We do have these seven lectures that were published in 1835 were combined with Joseph Smith's Revelations and in a new book called Doctrine and Covenants. These seven lectures were prepended to that uh, Joseph's like Revelations in the 1835 publication and were subsequently removed from the Doctrine and Covenants in 1921 when the church did a major overhaul of uh, the scriptures. And after they were removed, they gained the title Lectures on Faith. And that's in the 20th century and since how we know them. We can buy them separately now. If you buy them from Deseret Book, it will say they're written by Joseph Smith. If you buy them through Seagull, it says probably written by Sidney Rigdon. And that's getting to my topic. Isn't it true that it was the original doctrine of the Doctrine and Covenants? The name title Doctrine was added in 1835 to account for the lectures. That is correct. I'm just going to segue here and talk about that 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. When it was canonized, it was a unique situation, quite an interesting situation. I'm sure you're aware of it. Do you want to go over that and how that might fit into how the Lectures of Faith even got into the Doctrine and Covenants? Yes, uh, it's actually a long and complicated story. I hope we can make sense of it in uh, a a brief way. With the failure of the attempted publication in Missouri in 1833, the brethren knew that they needed to produce the revelations of Joseph Smith in some kind of usable format for the members of the church. And so in 1834, a committee was formed consisting of the members of the First Presidency of the church to pursue that publication. And these were Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams. At the time the project was undertaken, it was focused on just Joseph Smith's revelations. By the time it came to fruition, it had grown to include not only his edited revelations, but also these seven lectures from the the, uh, Kirtland School and two additional sections, we would call them today, written by Oliver Cowdery, probably with some help from some other people. One of those is the article on marriage, and the second one is in our present Doctrine and Covenants on politics, both written primarily by Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon, as we've come to understand now, was the author of the lectures. And so the 1835 edition, called now Doctrine and Covenants, actually included writing from each of those three members of the First Presidency. Interestingly, with Sidney Rigdon's lectures put at the front, in spite of the fact that there was a Lord's Preface revealed in now our Section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants, but all that gets pushed back and Sidney's lectures go at the front. It should be mentioned in this regard that for months before, uh, during the the last stages of publication, uh, Sidney and Oliver were alone in Kirtland. Joseph and Hiram and all of the Twelve Apostles were off on missions. And so there is this interesting phenomenon that their work uh, becomes prominent. And the canonization that you refer to occurs 
for some reason, a week before any of these other general authorities returned to Kurland. It's pretty complicated, and it's, uh, in retrospect, pretty clear that Sidney and Oliver had gotten some ideas, they're pretty ambitious, promoting some of their own work here, trying to temper some of Joseph's work. These brethren had been involved in earlier attempts to improve Joseph's revelations and, in Sidney's case, to actually take over leadership of the church when Joseph had been out of town for an extended period. So things aren't as smooth in Kirtland as they are in Salt Lake City in 2017. Oh, definitely. But that context is really interesting. It seems less weird that they have things in the Doctrine and Covenants after you pointed out that they were each members of the First Presidency. And then also we know there was this kind of tug and pull as they tried to figure out their roles. At first, Oliver and Joseph were co-presidents, and then Joseph kind of said, no, Oliver, I need to be the head here. I think this is not easy for modern church members to appreciate. Joseph had never been the head of a church. All I had for examples were the Protestant churches around them, frontier Protestant churches, by the way, which themselves were very fluid in their organization. And it's not until 1838 that Joseph understands the necessity of establishing his own priority as president of the church. When did you first become interested in the authorship question in regard to the lectures on faith? I think I probably read the lectures on faith or read in them when I was a freshman at BYU a hundred years ago, and was kind of surprised at the philosophical and kind of lofty rhetorical tone that the lectures take. And because I study philosophy, I probably wasn't very impressed with the lectures at that time. But I think I probably just accepted what other people had said, that Joseph Smith was the author of them. Then in, after being on the faculty at BYU for really almost 20 years, I was approached to do a book review on a book that had been written and edited, assembled by uh, a group that was becoming pretty aggressive in their promotion of the Lectures on Faith. And I thought, well, if they want me to review the book, I'll review it, and not knowing a whole lot about it. I read the book, and especially the historical section, which gives the background of the lectures on faith and the reasons why they thought Joseph Smith wrote the lectures, and was almost stunned to see how thin that evidence was. At that time, wrote kind of a long review, mentioned the fact that I that there seemed to be uh, a lot of uh, question in the air, unresolved. And then that kind of set me going over the next uh, 10, 15 years. And just thinking about it, I, I came up with a second version after I had accumulated a lot more uh, research on the topic. And then in 2004, I uh, stumbled across what had always been lacking, and that is some real concrete evidence one way or the other on who was the author. And so I rewrote all this for this paper that now is, uh, was then published in the Journal of Mormon History to show that, uh, in fact, we have very clear evidence that it was Sidney Rigdon that wrote it. 
which corresponds to all the circumstantial evidence that had been assembled previously. What's the most convincing evidence you found that Sidney Rigdon really is the author? That question is what gave rise to that 2005 publication, because all the evidence that we were able to find before then was historical, and it was really circumstantial. You really couldn't nail it down. And then, along about 2004, I came to realize that Sidney Rigdon, over a period of 18 months, had been publishing this series of essays on these very topics in the church newspapers. And so it was serialized there. And uh, so what I did is I uh, I thought, okay, we've got a lot of text by Sidney Rigdon here, and let's compare them and see what the comparison is. So I hired someone who didn't know anything about this, who himself is a writer, so he would be sensitive to writing styles. And I asked him to read three piles of paper. One was these essays that Sidney had written, and they're they're long. There's a lot of stuff there. The second was The Lectures on Faith, and he had never read it before either. And the third was uh, some writings by Joseph Smith. And then I said, uh, now, take 30 days, read this stuff, come back and tell me which ones you think were or were not written by the same person and why. He came back, he said, well, that's easy. These two piles of paper are written by the same person. Okay, I said, okay, why? And he said, well, there are some very distinctive rhetorical phrasings that just keep showing up. And so in, in both of them, I said, okay, give me a list. And so he, he gave me a list. That, uh, I can't remember the exact number, about 30-some phrases that, that he saw as being characteristics of the two. And it has also been very distinctive. You know, they just really kind of stuck out for him. We then went through and used a computer to go through and identify all the occurrences of all those phrases in all three piles of paper. Those phrasings recurred hundreds of times in uh, Sidney's essays, almost 200 times in the lectures, not one of them ever occurred in anything written by Joseph Smith that we considered, very clearly linking the two. In fact, the per thousand words occurrence of these things was double in the lectures on faith what it was in Sidney's own essays. For most scholars, that's really convincing evidence. It's the smoking gun that we had been looking for. I need to tell you where I first ran across your work. I was teaching gospel doctrine, and I quoted the lectures on faith. And I said, and Joseph Smith teaches us, blah, 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 blah. This was about 15 years ago. or Yeah. And a friend was sitting in gospel doctrine, and afterwards she just quietly came up to me and she said, you know, I just read a study about the lectures on faith, and there's some authorship questions. So she sent it to me, and I loved that she did that. I have tried to do the same thing with people with different responses. There still continues to be a devoted following for the lectures on faith, even though it's no longer part of our Doctrine and Covenants, it's not an official publication, it's been decanonized. Why do you think people still are so attracted to the lectures on faith? I've had the same question many, many times. Before the 1950s, 
it was pretty standard uh, assumption on the part of uh, informed Latter-day Saints and church leaders that Sidney Rigdon had written the lectures. That was just assumed and widely understood. But along in the mid-20th century, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, particularly in his younger days as General Authority, became quite impressed with the lectures on faith and has repeatedly and publicly made extraordinary statements about their level of inspiration and their value and so forth. Other general authorities were much less willing to take those kinds of positions, but a kind of enthusiasm surrounding Elder McConkie developed what probably is not widely understood, but I've heard this discussed at least semi-publicly by President Watson, for example, is that in the uh, 1981 revision of the Triple Combination, that Elder McConkie had a prominent role in that and had actually proposed to put the Lectures on Faith back in, that and some other materials. And that after lengthy discussion, the brethren told him that, no, he was asking for too much. They didn't want to do that. And so it's not in there. And I loved Elder McConkie. This is not a criticism of him at all. I have great admiration for him and uh, and so many of the things he's done. He seemed to have an enthusiasm that was fed by having more and more things be part of the Restoration. And I have to admit, I come from a different mentality, which is being skeptical and watching out for people who are trying to import things into the Restoration that really aren't part of it. You know, there's those two different mentalities. I I come from a background of knowing what happened in early Christianity. And there were these endless pseudepigraphic writings and apocryphal writings that people were trying to sell as basic Christian stuff being written by the apostles and so forth. And that's been an endless battle to keep the basic teachings of Christ limited to what's in the scriptures and even deciding what was in the New Testament was a huge battle for three centuries. But I think what happened is that with this uh, move to consider republishing the Lectures on Faith as part of the Triple Combination, I think that out of that, a number of individuals feeling a great loyalty to Elder McConkie, for one thing, became very supportive of that idea and began just saying that the Lectures on Faith were written by Joseph Smith. But there was never any good evidence for it. A comment that I have heard often by people who load the lectures on faith is that even if Joseph Smith did not write these lectures, he knew they were being given and he reviewed them. So it's just like he wrote them and he approved everything in the lectures on faith. Do you see any problem with that line of thinking? Well, there's probably two things we could say about that. One is there's actually no historical evidence that Joseph ever looked at them or touched them. There is just one statement inserted in the January 1835 History of the Church that says Joseph spent time reviewing the Lectures on Faith for publication. That statement was inserted in the History of the Church eight years later by a secretary who was trying to fill in 18 months' worth of missing record from Joseph's daily or regular record that he had been keeping with his secretaries. But there's an 18-month gap in there. The Kirtland School occurs in the middle of that gap, 
And eight years later, someone is trying in Nauvoo, trying to fill in and make sense and just wrote that. And we have no idea what kind of evidence he had for that statement, whether Joseph told him that or whether he's saying he must have done something because he thought Joseph must have helped. There's just no way to know. And so that's not reliable historical evidence. The second thing is we can look at, well, did Joseph use the lectures? Did he claim them? Uh, Did he quote them? Did he teach from them? Did he ever repeat these teachings? And the answer to that is no, not once. Do we have, uh, now I haven't checked this against the new Joseph Smith Papers Project, which would be an interesting thing to do, and maybe somebody will take the time to do that. But I couldn't find any evidence that Joseph had ever used anything from the lectures. On the contrary, Sidney Rigdon, when he left the church in 1844 and went back to Pittsburgh and organized his own church and published the lectures on faith, he had a clear sense of ownership and of its value was not shared by Joseph or other church leaders. I know uh, some writers have tried to defend the lectures on faith, saying that they do reflect Joseph Smith's early teachings. I haven't found that very convincing. What is striking is the uh, strong correlation with some of the Campbellite doctrine that Sidney Rigdon had been involved with, with Alexander Campbell, before Sidney became a convert to Mormonism. One of the most egregious examples is lecture number five, which actually says that there are two people in the Godhead, the Father and the Son, and that Jesus shared the mind of God, and that sharing is what the Holy Ghost is, not a separate being. And and anybody can look in Lecture 5, and there it is. Just historians of American religion call that binatarianism. It's been argued back and forth. The fact that that's in there has made it easy for anti-Mormon critics to say that Joseph Smith's understanding of the Godhead evolved considerably and changed over time before it became what we teach in the church today. Joseph very clearly states in Nauvoo, he said, I have never taught anything but Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I read that statement by Joseph in Nauvoo as denying that he's the one that was teaching that binatarian doctrine in Kirtland. But uh, others have tried to find another way around that. Another example is Lecture 2. If you look at it, it's a little hard to read because it gives this long, long list of prophets, starting with Adam down through these long name lists that uh, are in the book of Moses, for example, and uh, which extends what's in the Bible. Why is all that in there? Well, the reason that's in there is because of the Campbellite doctrine that no man can have a testimony through the Spirit And the Spirit comes after Jesus dies, and it comes after baptism. You have to be baptized, and and this is all post-Christian. And so before that time, all testimony is based on human testimony. And so people could believe in God because Adam saw God, and he told his sons about it, and then they told their sons, and they told their sons. You have to have this chain of people that, down going back to Adam, to be able to justify having a belief in Christ. Well, now that's a pretty odd doctrine from a modern LDS point of view, and it certainly is one that Joseph Smith directly contradicts. But that's, and where does it come from? It comes from Alexander Campbell. It's that simple. 
We were talking before the interview, and you said at this period of time, there was a trend during the Great Awakening to have very logical reasons to believe in Christ. Nowadays, I think if you opened your lectures on faith on your lap, and you opened up your computer for the Joseph Smith papers, and you just pulled up a letter that Joseph had written, there would be no question in your mind that Joseph didn't write the lectures on faith because they're very (laughs) complex. Can you tell us a little bit about how important that type of philosophy was in the culture? And I wonder at its reception, we don't have any record of this probably, but these were farmers and uneducated men in the school of the prophets and you're throwing the lectures on faith to them, which I read after my college experience as well and thought, wow, this is deep. I think it's fair to say that the American evangelical preachers, especially on the frontier, but it was actually nationwide during the latter half of the 19th century, particularly well throughout the 19th century, had been influenced heavily by the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was in full bloom a century earlier, but it gets into American evangelical preaching. Basically, it's a rhetorical stance in which the person speaking or writing claims that the truth, the gospel truths, religious truths, have to be demonstrated rationally, and they have to make sense to the rational man. And that making sense is what, in a way, what makes them true, uh, how we can tell the true ones from the false ones. Now, it's not that the people teaching this were so highly educated. None of them had philosophical training or philosophical degrees, but it's a rhetorical stance. And so they just constantly refer to reason and the demands of reason. And the reasonable man would say this as a way of compelling agreement with what they were saying. It's a rhetorical device more than it is evidence of a lot of education. But it's very characteristic of the Campbellites. Alexander Campbell was definitely into this rhetorical tradition. But also others that were not associated with Campbell also had the the same kind of these lectures are often published, and we can you can go in the library and read them. It's just a style of writing. Well, the lectures on faith just import that exact style, as do other writings of Sidney Rigdon, which nobody reads today. People on the American frontier were hearing that kind of thing all the time. Joseph Smith never uses that kind of thing. Brigham Young never uses that kind of rhetoric. But certainly the Latter-day Saints in Kirtland and Nauvoo had heard a lot of it before they got to Sidney Regan. Many of us members have this book on our shelf, Lectures on Faith, maybe two, because we inherited a copy. These lectures written 185 years ago by Sidney Rigdon. Could you just briefly explain what you hope members would take away from these authorship studies you have done as they approach the Lectures on Faith? Well, the lesson for me was be careful (laughs) what you take as uh, authentic sources of gospel teaching. It's very easy. And and, And we've seen this in our lives. Different individuals, charismatic individuals will come along with some uh, special teaching, get a lot of following, and create waves with members of the church, and and then it all goes away. For some reason, the lectures on faith keeps coming back. (laughs) 
I can remember in the 1950s when uh, there was a great enthusiasm across the church for the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've actually been very deeply involved in Dead Sea Scrolls work with the scholars, the main scholars who uh, have uh, uh, done the work on these. And, and the original things that Mormons were telling themselves about the Dead Sea Scrolls turn out to be very f fantastical. It's uh, not based in an understanding at all of what's really going on, what they are. But we do need to be careful. For me, that means paying close attention to what the prophets are saying, to what they are writing, to the things that they tell us are revelation, and not trying to expand and increase and fill our minds with exciting new things that seem like they're highfalutin, new understanding. That's not where it comes from. I think we need to keep our noses in the Book of Mormon and, and in the revelations of Joseph Smith and, uh, and not look for other things to expand or elevate our uh, understanding of the gospel. Thank you, Noel, for spending some time with me today visiting and talking about the lectures on faith. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed visiting with you. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.